How about now? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, wonderful. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Shane, thank you so much for coming on again. The official second time coming around. I'm super excited and (laughs) I'm really (laughs) grateful for you as you help me close out National Poetry Month. It's been a wild time and I'm exhausted, but I'm super, super happy (laughs) that I got to talk to so many awesome, awesome poets. So how have you been, man? Great. Uh, Just keeping my nose to the grindstone, as it were, working on a lot of stuff. Yeah, I noticed there's been a lot that you've been posting, in particular, a lot of your visual work. And uh, I wanted to ask you about that because we barely scratched the surface. I mean, we spoke a bit about the, the prose and fiction, a little bit of poetry last time, but there's this whole other part of you that I'm curious to know more about because now you strike me as a self-contained art machine. It's pretty incredible. (laughs) Uh, So if you don't mind, can I ask you a little bit about the visual aspect of your work and how this, how this just comes about naturally, how ingrained is it or entangled is it with the written work that you do? It's pretty entangled. I, I think I, I get images in, flash in my brain alongside words uh, simultaneously. And uh, sometimes my ideas stay in the visual world and there aren't really words to pin uh, on some of my ideas. And uh, other times I get the words first and then images pop into my mind and I've got to sketch them somehow. Some of the last ones that you shared, they seem to have, they felt like, (laughs) correct me if the references are off, or maybe I should ask you first, what are the visual references that you go to? Because I I can guess they they strike me as sort of like something that's going back in time or with a kind of futurism, but I'm curious what your thoughts on your references are. Uh, Varied and you're, you're, you're definitely right there there is a bit of retro futurism i i'm inspired by retro futuristic concepts the clunky robots that make no sense <laughs> and have weird doodads all over them uh, and i'm also inspired i'm not a religious person myself i'm an atheist but i'm still inspired by religious imagery mm. and in some cases it's a general religious imagery uh, for for example that latest piece i posted pilgrimage which is people climbing atop a an old gigantic robot and they're trying to get to the top because there's a little shrine at the top and uh, mm. that's sort of you're you're vague what is this you know that i don't i don't explain it and i i think that's one aspect of visual uh, of of art or visual art that is appealing to me is i i'm leaving it open for anyone who looks at this to come up with why these people are going to this shrine at the top of this robot and that's really fun for me to hear what other people have to say about it Um, Mm -hmm. but in other cases the visual art i have this other collection that's a lot more abstract and uh, it's called anthropocene and i i've posted a few of those things online uh, but uh, it is it, it's a very different direction from that um it, it's very abstract and it deals pretty explicitly with uh, some I, I would say like a mixed 
symbolism of biblical uh, aspects, biblical imagery, and especially Old Testament imagery. So uh, I think it depends. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I've always found it interesting, just as a general note, that a lot of the folks who are atheists or agnostics, I'm I'm mostly agnostic myself with some uh, recovering Catholic tendencies, but I feel that those are the folks who really dive deep into a conversation about religion and what its actual benefits are, what its need, what its duties are to the community and society. Whereas I think <laughs> it feels like the work of atheists is well-informed when it comes to faith. Why is that, do you think? Atheists, uh, we're, we're in a, an interesting spot where we we are open to the the concept of theology and and the symbolism behind the message and i think the the fact that we want some i would say it's some atheists uh, because atheists aren't a monolith there are definitely a lot of of militant atheists out there that i don't agree with Uh, i think everyone should have the right to respect and practice their religion as long as they're not, you know, um, trying to force it on other people and make their religious ideology law of the land. Um, That's where it gets horrendous and uh, destroys the rights of others. But there are definitely militant atheists out there who um, who I don't agree with. In any case, I I think uh, atheists are in a unique position because we we can sometimes look at religion more objectively and more for the metaphor, more for the symbolism, and that, that's how I look mm. at religion. Yeah. Uh, is and there's also the history of religion there that I think uh, a lot of a lot of people. I I think even people who uh, who learn theology, who go to school for theology, and it's their you know they're getting a degree in it. They they learn about the history and uh where why some things were interpreted in a certain way or translated in a certain way uh so i i think any even if you are religious uh the having the ability to take a step back and look at your scripture your your symbol more uh objectively and uh trying to understand the the meaning behind the meaning uh, uh of some of the what any religion tries to teach is important. Right. And it's fascinating how you can't at this point in our timeline as human beings uncouple religion from history. It is such a driving force. It's such a driving factor of how our society was put together that you're right. You really can't, you can't detach it from what it's caused and in kind of the place where we are now. But it's definitely easier for those who are a bit removed from those belief systems to actually look at that objectively. And I just think that's so curious that we're the ones who who choose to dive in even further and further than somebody who um, may just be okay with the message that is received in one parish or one church or one um, one Sunday morning. Right, right. Yeah, I, I I can understand that though because this religion for some people is an entire worldview, an entire structure, and whenever somebody tries to pry at that, uh, then you know, you, if that's your whole worldview, then mm-hmm. it feels like your your entity, your your essence as as sure. 
a human is being attacked. Hell, I feel uh, that myself we, sometimes. And I, I haven't been to church in a very long time. And there's still some moments where I, I kind of recoil when something happens because I feel like I have to reach for my religion, <laughs> you know, and, yeah, and I, yeah. it's, it's kind of like a phantom limb of faith <laughs> that, <laughs> that I have to keep going to. Uh, but it's, it's funny how those things just kind of stay behind or they stay with you, even though they've been left behind in some ways. Do you recall the, t- the moment? And I let me know if I'm prying on this, but I'm genuinely curious. Do you recall the moment where you said, I can't have this type of faith in my life that led you to atheism? Was there a, a moment of epiphany for you? Sure, there definitely was. Uh, I was 11 years old and I was uh, raised as a Southern Baptist. So oh. I, I'm, from te- I'm from Texas and baptism, Southern Baptists are, they run wild in Texas. And uh, it wasn't um, quite the speaking in tongues church that I was raised in, but I have I've been to several of those in Texas. Mm. Uh, but it, it, anyway, uh, I was in Sunday school and I was just questioning my Sunday school teacher because a lot of the aspects of the Bible didn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. My Sunday school teacher didn't like that I was questioning those things. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just like, a, hey, you're disrupting the class. It was, I got kicked out of my Sunday school class because I was questioning the teacher too much. Uh-huh. And then that made me realize, uh, even as an 11-year-old, uh, it was weird for me to find an adult who didn't want to explain things to me. <laughs> and and so i began to pry further and further and i i credit my sunday school teacher uh, mrs long for kicking me out of my uh sunday school and my parents who were pretty religious they both passed away but they were pretty Mm. religious southern baptists they they actually defended and in in a in sort of a passive aggressive way defended me because they stopped going to that church very shortly thereafter. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and they just didn't go to church uh, anymore after that. And so um, it was. I found I found that to be the moment. Like when thinking back, that was my my epiphany. I, I probably didn't know exactly what what it was. I mean, I was eleven, so I probably didn't even know what the word epiphany meant at the time. But. Sure. Uh, Uh, I, I, that was the moment where I thought like, wait, maybe adults don't have all the answers, but they really try to make you think that they do. And maybe the, what, what all this is the Sunday school and and Sunday sermons and sitting through all this stuff is, is not all that it seems to be. And so Mm -hmm. that made, made my 11 year old brain spin. And I would just go to the library and try to find everything I could. Mm-hmm. on um on higher learning in in regards to the bible the new testament so it's been with you for a long time you've been actively discovering and researching on your own and looking through to find your own satisfactory answer to this it's funny that you mentioned that because around that time i think i may have been around that same age when i was raised in mexico i credit religion for introducing me to the arts which is kind of a common through line for many people because that's just how the arts are introduced to a lot of people. But there was a traveling troupe of missionaries who were performing from the U S and I was living in Mexico with my family at the time, must've been eight or nine years old. 
And they did a play about the resurrection of Christ and what he did because they were missionaries educating people on on their faith. And I, I've never told anyone this, but I just thought this was such a curious thing that it was an interpretive, no prop, no stage design kind of performance. It was very interpretive. It was the ensemble of people who were dressed in white and it was very, like I said, experimental interpretive because obviously it had to travel, right? And you think now in theater yeah. terms, it has, the show has got to travel, so we can pack right. light. And having that experience when I was that young, it sort of like exposed the bones of storytelling. And I was like, that's really cool. I want to do that. <laughs> but there's this through line of, I don't know that I would tell that story because there's just so many other things that I'd like to talk about using that kind of creative avenue. And ever since I was young, faith felt like a, a ritual more than a responsibility. It felt like a performance in, in a lot of ways. Right. And, and in Mexican Catholicism, there is a lot of grandeur and there is that highlighting of the, the suffering of Christ and that sort of thing. And it definitely affected me in such a way that I couldn't get past the, what felt like theatricality to me. And so right. I, I felt like that was definitely the beginning of my uh, storytelling pursuits is like, there's got to be other stories there to tell with this kind of um, firepower, I suppose, creative fire, firepower. But it, alas, I wanted to ask you about the, the awesome hashtags that you have and whether you were, are going to be putting together some swag <laughs> or if you already have some <laughs> swag, because you're designing for print as well. You're designing for um, for, for other kinds of stuff. So can you tell me about, uh, what kind of designs you got going on right now? Oh yeah. Uh, I, so I design all, all my own book covers. Um, I, I'm also a, a board game designer. Um, I'm not going to yes. go down the rabbit hole, the rabbit hole of board sure? game design, but <laughs> well, we can't, we you have can, to give but, me uh, a, at least a little bit because that's where we left off last time. That's a bit of the cliffhanger. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm working on a few board games, uh, and they they're different in in their style. Uh, but uh, that that kind of stuff is really fun for me. So uh, to give you an example, I have this game called Color Space, uh, which also uh, uses a retro futurism motif, and uh, it's actually a quick little strategy game that you play with tiles. Uh, I would mm. say it's it's kind of it's kind of like it's kind of like chess or there's a game called hive uh, uh, out there that it, it, it has some similarities to, uh, but it uses this retro futuristic style. And it, I also, I use like a, a rainbow motif because uh, the game involves uh, making secondary colors by using these primary color tiles. And that's how you win as you collect the secondary colors. So, wow. so it's, Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Uh, what, what, okay. Well, I was going to say, uh, I have this other game though called nine muses and it is a very, is completely different art style. Uh, so it's based off of the, the, you know, Greco Roman nine muses. And, uh, so the art style is based on Greek pottery. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, bronze, there's a lot of black and, uh, there's a lot of interesting, uh, golden bronze line work and black line work and stuff like that. So, um, very different 
designs, um, but it's it's very fun for me. Uh, I also <laughs> design all my own book covers. I I could just gush about design and, and artwork all day. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and you spring so many questions in my head about this because there's beautiful considerations that have to be taken in every single medium or form that you're tackling, but specifically with games, with board games, how does that come into your life? And now how are you going about creating something like that? Like, could you give me an example of a point of origination for one of these games? Like uh, how, how this kind of began to come together for you? Yeah, the, it, it, the, my ideas for board games are, are, they pop up in different ways. Uh, sometimes it's through the the limitations of a contest. So there's oh. this website called called Board Game Geek, and uh, they'll have board game publishers who will post these contest ideas. And the contests are defined around harsh, hard, hard limitations. So, mm. uh, for example, one of them is like a 54 card game. Uh, so your game can only have 54 cards in it. You can use the standard uh, deck of playing cards or you can design your own cards but that's all you can have in the game is 50, 54 cards that are mm. that are roughly the poker size uh and then there like nine muses uh, that idea came about because there's an, a nine card uh design contest that i i entered and that's the limitations you your game can only have nine cards mm. uh and so uh immediately my brain went to nine muses and huh. uh, I I just kind of went from there. So, uh, but design. Yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead, please. Uh, <laughs> design design is iterative. Uh, board game design is, is it is an iterative process. You have to first off, you have to answer the question of why why am I designing this? Like, what is why am I designing this game? Why do, why does this game matter? And uh, then you get to what's the main tension of this board game. So what's the what's the struggle? What's the sort of tug of war um, mm. that players are in, involved in? Um, and it's interesting. I think the the most interesting aspect of board game design is that it, it still is a form of storytelling, but mm. it is it's the beginning of storytelling. You're you're actually uh, leaving the 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 tools for other players to tell their own story each time they play a game. So it's more like setting up the premise, setting up that initial dramatic question, right? And setting them off to build that narrative, which is why you, you had mentioned you also do like Dungeons and Dragons or not. Like what, what were the games that, that you feel have a strong narrative that influenced the way that you design? Uh, there are a lot. Dungeons and Dragons is definitely one of them, uh, or tabletop RPGs in general. I have a few other tabletop RPGs that uh, I, I like playing. That um, really, they they're more involved. They have uh, a lot of lore, you know. And yeah. there's a whole world out there, but they still adhere to that principle of let's just set the dominoes up and let all the players knock those dominoes down, however yeah. they see fit. Uh, and board game design, I would say board games are, uh, they're more narrow, they're more rules, there's more structure than you'd find in a tabletop RPG, um, but they're designed for, you know, quicker play sessions. Mm. Uh, you know, you, you can play a board game in an hour, maybe, um, you, you probably could barely get through one 
D and D session in an hour. <laughs> like you'd be lucky to get through a D and D session in an hour, you know, it's, so um, it's more so, a longer commitment, uh, kind of yeah. game style. So yeah. would you say that the board game industry does a lot of this outreach to just find new work or is it fairly insular in, in some regards? How, how's that been for you? The board game industry, I, I would say even, uh, there, there are parallels to the right, the writing, uh, the publishing industry. You know, it, it is a very tight knit group. It is difficult to break in. And I, there are many paths to try to go about breaking in. In a lot of cases, it comes down to work on board games, <laughs> make board <laughs> games, put them out, share them with people, get people to play your board games. Uh, and it's the same with writing, you know, it's the same with any storytelling. It's yeah. get the work out there. And I know that that's a hard thing to do, you know, especially while we have to juggle 50 million other things in our lives. Sure. But I, I think the con at the end of the day, the content you, you create uh, will speak for itself. Mm. Have you looked into designing and producing something on your own without going through a contest or have you done that in the past or, or what would that entail? Um, I'm looking at that right now. I think with, uh, with color space and uh, a couple of other games that I have on, uh, in, on my design table, <laughs> uh, I've got, I've got uh, four games. I think that I, I'm in, I'm in various phases of designing or have just finished designing. And uh, it, it comes down to having a Kickstarter, I think, or some kind of crowdfunding um, or their websites very similar to there's a, there's a web, there's a, a board game manufacturer uh, called the game crafter and oh. they're, uh, they're based out of like Wisconsin, I think, but they do print to play. And so you, you can design, you design your assets, you design your rule book, you design your box. They give you templates to help you uh, with those things. And then they have this standard set of components. You know, you can get cards, you can get, um, you can custom design cards. You can get a little, what are called meeple, which are little wooden figures that vaguely resemble a humanoid shape <laughs> um, and other, and other things like that, like that, the components that you would need for a board game. They're, they're kind of standard. And uh, so there, there isn't a lot of customization to be had with uh, certain components, but they're print to play. So the benefit to something like that is you can just put your game out there on the game crafters website and uh, people can order from there. And, and so you, uh, you don't have to have typically when you're publishing a game, when you go to commercial uh, manufacturers of board games, they'll have you meet a threshold. So they'll say, you know, Hey, we're not going to even print your game unless you can give us the money for 1500 copies mm. of your game at you know um, wholesale value here and so you have to come up with that that cash and that means you have to have enough people interested in that first print run so that there's a lot of risk involved up front going the traditional route mm. uh, but the benefit is with the traditional route you can you can typically get a lot of your game out there uh, like having a kickstarter is hard but if you can come up with the the funds through a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo or um, some other crowdfunding site in order to get your game out there. Um, there you, you, I think you can also make uh, more money per game. So that's, that's pretty helpful for people. 
Um, but you have to handle a lot of those logistics yourself. So you have to work with uh, the manufacturers, you have to work with shipping, you know, so most manufacturers are in China. Uh, so you'll want to handle shipping and then you have mm. to have your game sit in a warehouse in the US <laughs> or Europe. Uh, and then you have to work on distribution. So uh, that's, a, that's a lot of moving pieces that one person um, such as myself would have to deal with. But yeah. I, I'm looking into it and um, it would be a lot of work, but uh, people have done it before. Uh, and if other people can do it, I think I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's got to be some belief there. You have to hold strong and I'm sure that it'll be, it'll be worth the while. But it does seem like there is a serious level of time and resource commitment financial commitment for sure so yeah there's there's a lot there but i i'm curious because i've never met somebody who has that disposition right to want to design something that will bring that kind of experience to people do you think that's remarkably different from poetry and narratives or do you feel like you can't switch like a board game designer hat to a poetry hat to a writer hat. Everything's just kind of one act of creation. Does that, is that accurate? For me, it is. I, it, it may be different for other people, but for me, it is. For me, everything starts with the the idea, the spark. And then I, ha <laughs> I kind of have the, this filtering system that I use where <laughs> I'll write things down in a little notebook and then I'll go back and review them. And, you know, I'll, I'll say that idea is shit, that idea is shit, that one's all right. I'll think of that later. <laughs> this one's bad, 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 bad. And so I go through the list of ideas. And then once I have an idea that I, I like, I think about what uh, within my wheelhouse, of what I know, uh, what I'm of what I'm I'm comfortable and confident in being able to do. Yeah. Poetry, narrative, uh, visual, uh, board game. Um I think like, where does this idea belong? Like, where is this best? Uh, and then I take it from there. Yeah. So what are some tools that you have grown comfortable with during your design development? Uh, what do you use to produce this work? I use, uh, so for my visual artwork, uh, which I, you know, I, I do all of my own artwork for all my board games. Uh, so, um, that kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, I use procreate for, uh, for iPad. So procreate's mm -hmm. a, a, a digital drawing app. And, um, I think it's, it's fantastic. So I have an iPad, I have an Apple pencil and, um, all my visual media is, uh, is done through there. Um, I also will do sketches uh, on you know, pen and paper. I typically use pen and paper. Um, I rarely use pencil anymore. So mm. um, I typically do a lot of like ink sketches and stuff like that. Um, but you? I also am comfortable with Illustrator and Photoshop. Um, so I use Illustrator for a lot of my design work, like the, my cover designs, my book cover designs. Um, could be mixed media. So like I could sketch something out and then you know, put it in Illustrator. Uh, if I need a certain effect, I'll go over to Photoshop. So um, Photoshop, Illustrator, and Procreate, I think are my, my three mm -hmm. biggest tools. They feel like the right kind of arsenal for you with that kind of yeah. malleability. What about your background in the work that you did before? I You mentioned you did UX writing. Is, is that accurate? Is that 
what it's called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it's called. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, could you explain it for a layperson dummy like myself what that work entails? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a nuanced role, uh, and uh, so a lot of and it's kind of new. So, I, I it I think it's it's unheard of in a, in a lot of circles. But uh, UX writing is uh, something. It's an aspect of user experience design. So. Uh, user experience design is geared toward software, um, but you can find user experience design in all aspects of, um, I would say, any any form of like industrial design. Mm. So designing like physical com- uh, things that people use every day. Uh, but m- my focus was in software. I worked for a software company, and so I worked in in the tech industry. And uh, my job was to make sure that um, every piece of text you were to read in a specific application uh, sounded human, sounded friendly, um, or had the right tone, uh, depending on the situation. Uh, So everything uh, obviously needed to be grammatically correct, but my job was to write uh, the, what you see in a software. So anytime you get like an error, you know, mm-hmm. um, instead of a software engineer writing that error, it, which typically would lead to a bunch of computer jargon that a lot of people <laughs> might not understand. Uh, my goal was to take that technical speak, that tech speak and uh, turn it into something that's more conversational and, uh, but still gets the point across and gives you as a user, the next step to take. Mm-hmm. So bring a sense of empathy to the computer language in a way yeah. so that people don't get scared and throw the phone, you know, at the floor like <laughs> most of us would do. It's talking right. to me. I'm doing something wrong. That's fascinating. Yeah. So definitely your writing background comes in handy with that sort of work, I imagine. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. UX writing uh, has helped me uh, refine the structure of of what I want to express in in a, the the fiction world <laughs> like yeah. writing fiction narratives uh, i think in, a, in some cases uh, my my earlier work before i got into ux writing it was i got good good marks you know people liked my my really earlier work when, when i was in like my teens and 20s but it, it was uh filled with rants, you know, (laughs) tangents and stuff like that. And so that's kind of like the mark. uh, Sometimes a tangent can be a good thing, an interesting thing. And then sometimes a a tangent in writing is hard, you know, for readers. And so UX writing really helped me take what I would have normally said in three sentences and work it into one sentence. Uh (laughs) Um, So, uh, and that's because it, I'm met uh, as a UX writer, I was met with hard limitations, you know, like yeah. you, you can't fit more than a certain number of characters in a, in a tiny little area of an application sometimes. So <laughs> uh, it was, it's, it's, you know, I think creatives uh, working within limitations uh, is important sometimes for mm-hmm. creatives. And, and sometimes you can take a limitation and run with it, use it as, as the foundation of, uh, what you're working on and uh, UX writing really helped me hone that in. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I love those deadlines. I'm nothing without my deadlines or self-imposed burdens to get something <laughs> done. If not, I would be upstairs playing video games with my son all day 
maybe lying down on the floor thinking about my life and my choices. And that's really not good for anyone, including myself. So generally, just a big general question, I hope you don't mind. What are your thoughts on the tech industry now and how we interact with it in our day-to-day? Is there something that you have taken away from being involved so closely with that industry? Yeah, my biggest takeaway from working in the tech industry is that uh, everything is centered around money. Mm. Uh, And the tech industry is no different. Technology itself is neither good nor bad, right? It's, it's always what people do with it and why people, what people, what people's motives are behind something. And the tech industry to me is just a, it's a new wing of manufacturing. Uh, and mm. you, it's, it, it's also becoming a little bit like, um, <laughs> a little bit like the foundation series uh where <laughs> you know you have this one person who is sort of a cult of personality a charismatic being and they're like the ceo right of a company yeah. and harry sheldon was kind of like that but he's like people are treating ceos like they're messiahs like they're prophets of some kind and like their their <laughs> their their status is raised you know um when these people are uh they're typically born into wealth uh, they don't care about uh, humans. They care about their bottom line. And the tech industry is no different. And every form of empathy that uh, is projected from any company in the tech industry always is grounded in the need to make money over actually being empathetic. So what I found working, and this this makes me sound really jaded. I did love my job. Um, I loved the work that I was doing. I love being able to make something that is a emotionless robot sound like it's a human being talked to you. Like that's a really interesting um, uh, line of work. It's it was really fun um, being able to think about how you know mo- if most people are using this thing, what are most people thinking right now, and how can I help address? any concerns and then get them on their path to, to doing what they need to do. That was really fun. But the broader picture of the tech industry to me is that you have this one person who is sort of formed a cult of personality mm-hmm. and everyone in the company either needs to pretend like they're an absolute fanatic for the product <laughs> or they get kicked out and it's crazy. And it, it may, it makes me think about, um, about the foundation series where you either uh, you mindlessly believe what some person who hired like hundreds of thousands of people that he calls human calculators, like that's like the foundation, right? Like, yeah. and that's like, that's like engineers in the tech industry. I mean, there's massive hiring of software engineers uh, in the tech industry. There's massive hiring and user experience is becoming important because human beings don't want to mess around with having to type console commands all day anymore. Like we're done with it. Like we, we need to do something. We want to use a computer to do something. We know computers can make our lives better because they make what we're doing easier to do better, higher quality. Um, and we don't have to pull our hair out just, you know, trying to do something create and the creative industry is no different, right? Like I use a computer, mm-hmm. even just writing things, right? Like even just typing things into a computer 
is 10 times faster, 20 times faster uh, than me writing something down. And if I were to handwrite in a book and then try to print that book in my handwriting and send that to you, you'd be like, this person is <laughs> out of their mind if they think I'm going to buy that. <laughs> right. Well, you know, like, we're, yeah. We're co- going back to the, uh, the, aesthetically pleasing thing. I mean, it, it can only yeah. be handled in, in small portions, but I do love this feeling of coming back full circle to hero worship and, and having the, these kinds of cults that are, are just a, a part of who we are as a species. Like we can't remove ourselves from that need to find a hero to worship no matter where we go. It, it is sort of some kind of, um, I don't, I can't even describe it. I mean, it's just so built into our DNA that we just choose to find leaders and saviors and folks who will come to make life easier for us and more convenient. And then everyone has to gather around and even in our most intellectually gratifying age where we are now, where we have so many answers at our disposal, so many, so much possibility, there's still this idea that no, let's follow this Messiah and see what he has to say. Right. Fascinating. <laughs> but you're not, you're not it's, jaded. I think you're, you're just speaking uh, a little bit of truth to power here, you know, and getting the yeah. word out, but I appreciate it, man. This is madness. I feel like I'm going to have to go back and uh, do some sci-fi reading now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like sci-fi hasn't been warning us about all this for the past like 70 years or more. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Um, Oh, man. I'm a, I'm also like right now I'm actually working on the first draft of uh, a, a fiction book uh, set in, in modern day. And it's about um, it's, it's about this guy who owns a diner and he um, he got his, his loan, all of his like startup money for his diner uh, from his religion uh, because nobody else would give him a loan mm. and his religion is coming to collect uh, on, on their loan oh, and wow. they kidnap him. And the whole book revolves around him being kidnapped and um, other employees in the diner uh, coming to like infiltrating the, the religion, which is a, it's a cult uh, and uh, <laughs> infiltrating this cult and um, trying to save him. Uh, and so that like this stuff is very much on my mind. And so like, I, I love this, this topic. I've done so much research on cults mm. that I like, sometimes it's hard for me to sleep at night because like, I think about how, um, how people get caught up into this stuff. I, I honestly don't, uh, see much of a difference between the, between comp- companies and corporate structures and cults and cultish ment- mentality. Mm. Wow. What do you recommend I look into if I'm interested to read more about cults? Oh, uh, there's, <laughs> I would say, I would say there's a, there's a lot out there on, um, Scientology and, uh, there's, I would say start with documentary, start with documentary series, uh, mm-hmm. because that's where I've gotten sort of the, the wealth of, of my information, um, I watched this, this, uh, HBO, uh, HBO has a lot. There's the vow, which is a documentary series on Nixium. Um, there's, uh, heaven's gate, uh, oh, which yeah. is, yeah. And that, that, that was a whole can of worms. That was really weird. Yeah. No, I, I remember that. I was very young when that happened and, and it still felt like this is something that just feels wrong. Like a lot of people just 
I don't want to say they they died for nothing. I mean, they were taken for a ride by this person. But lastly, I want to touch on poetry just a touch. Did yeah. you get any poetry written in National Poetry Month? <laughs> Was there any poetry? <laughs> yes. Uh, Busy guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm so I, I'm working on a new collection of poetry, uh, and it's called Fires Under the Great Neural Sky, which is the title of mm. one of the poems in the awesome. collection. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. It's going to be 75 poems. They're all existentialist poems. Uh, and the, so they, they deal with meaning and purpose. There, there definitely is religious imagery and, and imagery of mythology worked into some of them. And uh, they, uh, I, I've written 50 of them, uh, mostly over the month of April. And I, I've got another 25 to go, uh, and then I've got to go through a bunch of editing uh, in order to get get it up to, to snuff. Uh, and I'm looking to publish that. I'm going to self-publish it. I'm looking to publish it in uh, late July, early August. Oh, great. Yeah. I also plan on doing readings and and then uh, public like let it, giving people access to the to the readings as well. Uh, Probably through Bandcamp. Um, yeah. I may I may do Audible. I saw well. that you had know. you had your album of readings ready to go for the previous one, right? That was on Bandcamp yeah. too. Okay, mm-hmm. I'll make yeah. sure to link that in here too, so folks can see that you're working on that. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm excited about this. It's a. I, I feel like it's a it's an interesting collection because there's. There's a big structure around it, and existentialism is a really broad term. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, I I sort of break out uh, the I would say the things that I think of. I hope other people think of too. Like when we think of meaning and purpose, I think we also think of mortality quite a bit. And mm-hmm. so uh, these these poems deal with uh, all of that, <laughs> all that jazz. Oh, that's wonderful, and I'm very fascinated to check that out because you're talking about a lot of things that haunt me and keep me up at night. So I'm definitely <laughs> sure that there's going to be many folks out there who are going to be interested in this kind of work. But lastly, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I think that this has been an amazing opportunity to catch up. And I just want to ask you what your hope for the future is. Uh, well, first I'll say likewise. I love being on your podcast and I, I hope I can be more than just a second timer down the road. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, my hope for the future is to finish my damn work <laughs> is I really am just, I have so many projects that are in various phases of uh, completion, you know, and I, I am, I would say I'm a pretty prolific person. Uh, well, I'll say that ten you're times fast. But <laughs> let's let's not get around here. You're you're a machine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Sorry, I, yeah, I work on. Yeah, no, it's that's a good way to describe. Uh, what did you say? Is self-contained? What did you say earlier? You're in this a self-contained, self-contained art, art machine. <laughs> you need to get a shirt that says that. <laughs> I'm gonna write that down. Um, but. Yeah, I really want to get a lot of the stuff 
out there and get get people excited about it. I think that's that's been a struggle for me is like I get my work out and I want to go through the the motions of celebrating and talking to people who've read my my work and asking them what they thought about it, what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it and I I feel like um my my audience, my my readership is is growing and I love I love that. Um but I'm I'm really I'm a hungry to get a lot of stuff out there. Like I want to have a catalog, you know, I don't mm. have that much work that's actually been published because I'm still pretty new at this. You know, I haven't been at this for, for a long time. Um, so, and writing takes time, board game design takes time. It takes months to, to work on a board game. And um, sometimes it can take a, a, a year or more um, to finish a board game, get it out there, you know, and uh, have people actually playing it. Um, and same thing with, with a, a piece of literature, like it's, it takes years to, to write something, edit it, um, you know, a million times and make sure that it's really what you, you're trying to say and get it out there. And so I'm really just eager to get, get my work out there and have a really nice catalog where, you know, you, you're, you're not just looking at that one little book of poetry that I wrote and that one (laughs) little book of short stories that I have. Um, So I'm trying, I'm trying to do that. And I also just want to, I want more reviews on my work. I want more people to, to come, um, you know, and and tell me what they thought of my work and uh, what they liked, what they didn't like. I, I really miss those um, those interactions where somebody would say, like, "Hey, I really like. What did you mean by this? Or I really like that mm. this story. Or um, man, I didn't really like the way you you treated this character in this other story. <laughs> Stuff like that is it, it's always um, it's always great for me to hear. So that that's my hope for the future is that I just get I, I get more of that uh, experience. Well, my friend, it's safe to say that you are well on your way and you are actively inspiring me and any listeners to continue because I admire your work ethic. I admire the way that you're just out there with tenacity, doing the things that make you happy, regardless of what the form is, what the medium is. And I find that incredibly uplifting. So thanks for your candor, your thoughts and your inspiration, because it's uh, Definitely needed in the world. We just need to keep moving forward and trying to grow and learn from each other. So it's been a pleasure, man. And I was going to call this episode the second coming, but then I realized it kind of falls in line (laughs) with what we were talking about, but it would be a bit much. (laughs) I don't know. I don't think it's a bad title, but yeah. 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 I I don't want to ostracize the rest of the world. I think it would just be you and me listening to this. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so, yeah, man, thank you so much for coming on and helping me wrap up National Poetry Month. And I will make sure that we get the word out so folks can check out your website, which is? Youaremuted.com. That's my website. I love your titles. I'm a sucker for a good title, and you have many of them, including your Twitter and Instagram handles, which, you know, you need swag for this. Yeah. You got to make a toilet writer <laughs> swag shirt or a hat. <laughs> Um, I'll work on that. I can, I can probably do that. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's a nice little self-deprecating bit, you know, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I love it. It's good stuff, but I'll leave you be man, but thanks again for stopping by. And, uh, I hope that we can keep catching up down the road. Okay. Definitely. Thanks for having me on here. It was, it was a blast. Yeah, man. Anytime. I'll talk to you real soon. <laughs> All right. Bye now. Bye.